Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 43 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, and we're specifically in this mini-series that I began about seven weeks ago on the life of Joseph. It's called Joseph from a Pit to a Palace. We have followed Joseph's unlikely yet providential journey from where his brothers, in jealousy, enraged by their envy, took their brother and threw him in a pit, and together they would have left him for dead, to die and starve there. But then one of them spoke up, Judah actually, and he said, hey, hey, why don't we pull him out of here, sell him, and make a few bucks off of him? And that's exactly what they did. So he was sold into slavery for a paltry sum of some 20 pieces of silver. And these Ishmaelite traders took him all the way to Egypt, tethered to a donkey. He was eventually sold on the auction block, ended up in Potiphar's house, the house, the chief of police for Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. Well, through his time there in Potiphar's house, he was uh, pursued by Potiphar's wife, and then he was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. And there he was languishing in prison for several years until God providentially brought him before Pharaoh, the ruler of the lone superpower of the world. And there before Pharaoh, through the power of God, he interpreted to Pharaoh something none of his magicians, none of his wise men could do, two dreams that he had. And instantly he was put in charge of all of Pharaoh's doings. He was the second in charge, answering only to Pharaoh himself. Well, it was in those dreams that God revealed through Joseph that there would be seven years of bounty, seven years of plentiful production from the crops of the land. And then following those seven years of bounty, there would be seven years of destitute drought and famine. And under the administration and the supervision of Joseph himself, he, first of all, had all the grain of the seven plentiful years taxed 20% tax rate. And they took that grain that was taxed and they stored it up in silos. In, they were actually pits within the rock in the ground. And they would store up that grain and so that in the seven years of famine, they would have a reserve through which they could feed the population. Well, this famine hit not only Egypt, but all the known world. It went as far as Canaan, some 500 miles away, where Joseph's family lived. And so as they ran out of food, word spread to them, hey, there is food storage in Egypt and you can go buy food and bring it back and live. And so what does Jacob, Joseph's father, do? He takes his 10 brothers, the 10 brothers that dealt so harshly with Joseph, and he sends them on the 500-mile journey with 10 donkeys to go and buy grain and bring it back so they can eat and so they can live. Unbeknownst to them, when they arrive in Egypt, they stand before the man who is actually administrating all of Pharaoh's grain is actually Joseph himself. Now, they don't recognize him because he has all the trappings of Egyptian aristocracy. He's shaved. He doesn't have the the traditional beard of a Hebrew Semite. He's shaved his head. He's wearing the clothing. He walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian, right? That was Wade's joke two weeks ago, and he maliciously stole it before I could use it, so I wanted to use it myself, like the Bengals, right? And they don't recognize it's him, but he recognizes them. He knows my brother, some 20 years later, 
are standing right in front of me. Sure, they got more wrinkles on their face. They've got more gray in their beard, but it's unmistakable. These are his brothers. And through some brilliant interrogation techniques, he starts to find out and ascertain what's going on back at home. Is my father still alive? Is Benjamin his only brother by their mother, Rachel? Is he still alive? Is he still doing good? He finds out all these things. And then here's what he does. He says, okay, I think you guys are spies. He accuses them, not once, not twice, but three times of being spies in the land. You've just come to see where our land is vulnerable so you can come in and mount an attack. They say, no, 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 no. They protest. We're not spies. We're just here for grain. We just want some corn. Well, he says, listen, I'm not going to believe your story unless you bring back to me your youngest brother that you told me about. And as a pledge of that youngest brother, one of you boys is staying here in prison. Well, Simeon apparently drew the short straw. He stays and languishes in that prison while all the boys go back to their home. Here's what's amazing. When they get home, they open their sacks of grain, and what do they discover? All the money they had spent to buy the grain in Egypt was returned back to them and was in the mouth of their sacks. They are struck with fear. Oh, my goodness. Our brother's still in jail, and here we have the money that we were supposed to spend on the grain. They think they're goners. Well, that's where we find ourselves as we get to the beginning of Genesis chapter 43. Now, commentators suggest that it could have been as long as two years since they returned from their first trip to Egypt. Two years they've been, uh, you know, eating this grain and trying to scrimp and save as much grain as possible. Two years their brother Simeon's been languishing in this Egyptian prison. And two years that Father Jacob has said, there ain't no cotton-picking way my son Benjamin is going to Egypt. And that's where we find ourselves here in verse 1 of Genesis 43. It's a rather lengthy passage, but we're going to read all of it up front. So hang with me for this reading, because I think I want us to get the flow of the narrative as Moses writes it under the inspiration of the Spirit. Here's what the Bible says, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that's Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. 
And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought them into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us his servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger, youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, I've entitled my message this morning, Our Great and Merciful God. And let me tell you where I came around that title. Because the Hebrew word for mercy is used for the very first time in the Bible, right here in Genesis chapter 43. And it's used not once, but it's used twice, first in verse 14, and then also in verse 30. Notice in verse 14, as Jacob is sending his sons on, what he says to them, he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother in Benjamin. And then as you look down in verse 30, we see that it's used of Joseph to describe his own heart. Then Joseph hurried out, and for his compassion, same word for mercy that's translated compassion here, his mercy grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. This Hebrew word, rachem, in the Hebrew, finds its origin, actually, in a word that has to do with the compassion and the mercy and really the protection that a mother feels for her unborn child. Isn't that interesting? It has to do with a mother's love, a mother's mercy, a mother's care and compassion for her child. In fact, the prophet Isaiah actually uses this word in that way 
regarding God. Actually, God speaks of his own compassion for his covenant people in Isaiah 49 like this. He says this, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion, rachem, on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. A mother might in some trip of lunacy not have love for her child, but God said, I will never not have compassion for you, mercy for you. He is our great and merciful God. You may remember the account in the next book of the Bible, the book of Genesis in Exodus 33, Moses comes asking the Lord, really begging the Lord, Lord, God, show me your glory. He wanted to get a glimpse of the glory of God. And God says to Moses, you can't see me and live. No man can see me and live. He said, I won't let you see my glory. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and pass by. And as I pass by, I'll proclaim my glory to you. And in that proclamation in Exodus 34 to Moses, I want you to notice what the first word, the first character trait, the first attribute of his glory God proclaims. The Bible says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Friends, this is our God. This is the way he has revealed himself to us. He is a great and merciful God, and that's exactly the way God will reveal himself in this passage before us in Genesis chapter 43. He reveals himself as a great and merciful God. In all of his dealings, listen, with these 10 brothers throughout these 34 verses, it is so that he can reveal aspects of his nature to them. And Christian, you need to know this. In all the ways that God deals with you throughout your life, in the ups and the downs, in the highs and the lows, in the good times and the bad times, God is utilizing those experiences so that he might reveal to you some aspect of his nature and his character. Are you listening to what he wants to say to you? You see, if all we ever experienced in our lives was prosperity, if all we ever had in our lives, like the fake preachers that preach a false prosperity gospel, was no lack, then friend, there are aspects of God's nature and his character you would never know. There's aspects of who God is that he wants you to know that you would never understand or experience if you didn't go through hardship and difficulty and seasons of sorrow and loss and even uncertainty because it's in those seasons that God is teaching you something about himself that you didn't know before. And that's exactly what God is doing in this passage before us. And God is proclaiming he's a great and merciful God. He's a God of mercy. I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but in the passage we read, these 10 brothers interacted with three different individuals. And I love that because as a preacher, I have three points on my sermon. The first individual they interacted with was their father, Jacob. Second person they interacted with was Joseph's household manager, his steward. And then the third person they interacted with was actually Joseph himself. And so I want us to see through these three interactions how God reveals his mercy to them and to us. The first thing I want you to see this morning is this. Number one, we see God's mercy displayed in his power. God's mercy is displayed to these 10 brothers through his power. Throughout the first interaction with their father, that's what he communicates, is that he is a powerful God. And friends, that is a merciful thing for him to communicate to us. How many of you, whenever you were kids, uh, particularly boys growing up when you were kids, used to play the game mercy? 
You know that playground game where two boys get together and they interlock their fingers and somebody says go and then as they're going, they kind of squeeze and turn and twist until somebody succumbs to the searing pain in their wrist. They say, mercy, mercy, right? How many of y'all played this? I think this, I used to believe this is why God gave me big hands, just so I could play mercy and win. No, I'm kidding. But listen, we succumb to someone else's power and we cry mercy. And what God's going to reveal to these 10 brothers is that he is a powerful God so that they might succumb to his power and see his mercy, his mercy. And it's important to point out that what God is powerfully doing in this chapter again and what he is mercifully doing is he's bringing once again, as we saw in the previous chapter, he's bringing to their minds, to their view, their own personal sin. He's doing in a powerful and illustrative way how they are guilty for what they did to Joseph maybe 25 years ago. And that, friends, is a mercy from God to be confronted with your own sin. It's a mercy from God to realize your culpability and your guilt. There's really several ways he does this. First of all, through the conditions they faced. They come to know God's power and his mercy through the conditions they face. They are still in the condition of a worldwide famine. And God uses this to confront them with their sin. Now, we don't know exactly, again, how long the interval was between chapter 42 and chapter 43. No doubt, as they had this maybe 1,000 pounds of grain they'd hauled back on these donkeys, they were eating it and they were rationing it, and well, the grain ran out. There's no more grain. So what are they going to do? Well, they've got to go back to Egypt. They've got to go get more grain. And, and again, God is using this. In fact, notice how the chapter begins. Now, the famine was severe in the land. Surely they were hoping that, man, the, the, the rains are going to come. The ground is going to once again produce grain and corn so that we can eat and live. But it doesn't happen. The famine was severe in the land. And friend, that's a mercy. That's a mercy from God. If you're in a season of famine, if you're in a season of drought and lack, I want you to look at it through the grid of the Scripture. This is a mercy from the Lord. There's something about himself he's wanting to teach you, something about his nature and his character he wants you to learn, maybe about your own guilt, as with these ten brothers. Secondly, we see also the country they needed. The country they needed. Their father speaks up when they run out of food, it says in verse 2, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. <laughs> We're out of food. Boys, you need to go on this 500-mile journey. Again, they needed Egypt. And as we looked at last week, listen, this traveling to Egypt would have once again been a reminder of their sin. They would have been reminded, maybe as they traveled by the very spot where they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders. Oh, yeah, this is right where we sold Joseph. Oh, Joseph, I wonder what's going on with Joseph. And they're heading to Egypt, and they're walking the very path on the very road that Joseph would have traveled as he's tethered to a camel, trudging through the dust. A reminder of their sin. But not only that, I want you to see the concern of their father that God uses to demonstrate his power and his mercy. Once again, we see Jacob's, their father, tremendous concern, his favoritism for one of their brothers. This time it's towards Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin, no, no, no. He can't go back to Egypt. He can't go with you there. Surely this favoritism they were showing towards Benjamin would have reminded them of the favoritism he showed towards Joseph. And in that remembrance, 
they would have remembered how they dealt harshly in their jealousy and enraged by their envy towards Joseph. In fact, at first, conspiring to kill him, leave him to starve. Next, we see the contrition of Judah. One of their brothers, Judah, he speaks up in the text we read. After the dad says, hey, you guys need to go back to Egypt and buy us a little food, the brothers together, they say, hey, it ain't happening, dad. We are not going unless you send Benjamin with us. I find it interesting that throughout this passage, they refer to Joseph, their brother, as the man. (laughs) We ain't going back to the man because the man told us, don't you come back here without your little brother. And so Jacob actually, again, just demonstrating his favoritism towards Benjamin, kind of takes the whole thing personally. He says, why in the world did you guys even tell me I had a little brother? What are you trying to do to me here? They said, Dad, we didn't know. He just started asking us about our family. I mean, we'd never seen this guy before. He asked us about you, and he asked if we had any other brothers. How were we to know? He would say, bring your little brother back. And it was at that point that Judah comes up in contrition, and he makes this humble suggestion. He offers himself as a surety for Benjamin. Look again at verse 9. Here's what Judah says. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. What's Judah saying? Judah's saying, I'm willing to take full responsibility for Benjamin's life. My life for his life. Unlike his brother Reuben in the previous chapter, says, if anything happens to Benjamin, uh, you can kill my two kids. No, he says, if anything happens to Benjamin, it's on me. I'll pay the penalty. I'm the surety. I'm the substitute. I want you to think about this. Who is Judah pointing towards here? Who is Judah pointing towards who would also give his life as a substitute, as a pledge, as a surety? None other than a descendant of Judah from the tribe of Judah called the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ himself who is revealed in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. When John turned to look at the lion, who did he see? A lamb standing as slain. The substitute, the surety, the pledge for us. And so Judah says, I'll take full responsibility. This too would also remind these brothers of the events that occurred some 20 years earlier because it was actually Judah who said, when Joseph is in the pit, where they were going to leave him to starve and die. It's Judah who said, hey, why don't we pull Joseph out and sell him to these Ishmaelite traders here and at least make a few bucks off the kid. And that's exactly what they do. Here's the next thing that's a reminder of them to them, and that is the compensation they carried. It's amazing the details God has here. Their father, Jacob, instructs them to take two different things. First, a present. Uh, when you go back to the man, we want you to take a present to the man as compensation. What was in the present? Balm, myrrh, and spices. This would have been a reminder as well. You see, because 20 years earlier, when they sold Joseph to those Ishmaelite traders, what were they carrying in their wagon? Balm, myrrh, and spices. Here, you take balm, myrrh, and spices on this road to Egypt, just like the Ishmaelite traders. But even beyond that, here's what he told them to take. Okay, your money was returned in the sacks. Here's what you're going to do. Now, the word there for money in Hebrew is usually translated over 200 times in the Old Testament as silver. Here it's translated money. It literally means silver. Think about it. Ten brothers, ten bags, ten pieces of silver. 
And what did Jacob say? Double that. Which means, math majors, 20 pieces of silver. How much did they sell Joseph for? 20 pieces of silver. You see how God is in every detail? Reminding them again and again of their guilt and their sin? This is a mercy from God. But then finally, and most profoundly, God displays his mercy through his power in this final way through the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham. Now, these brothers, they'd been trained, they had been educated in the oral tradition in the family of all that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their father, had done for them. They knew all the stories of God's miraculous and divine call of great-grandfather Abraham. They knew how God met with great-grandfather Abraham, and they knew the covenant that God had made with great-grandfather Abraham. And when God ratified the covenant with Abraham, he revealed to Abraham a unique, a special name for himself. In Genesis chapter 17, we find the account. Notice how God revealed himself to Abraham at the marking of the covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Did you see that? The name that God revealed when he ratified the covenant with Abraham was the name God Almighty. In Hebrew, El Shaddai. It's the first time El Shaddai is used in the Bible. Genesis 17. And Jacob, the grandson of Abram, reaches back to that event and he grabs that name, El Shaddai, and he's, he's praying over his boys as he's about to send them off to Egypt. Notice what he says in verse 13 and 14. Take also your brother, that's Benjamin, arise and go again to the man. Here's the prayer. May El Shaddai, God Almighty, grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Now, I want you to think about what Jacob is doing here in sending off his boys on this treacherous journey. What is he doing by taking all of his remaining sons, one still in prison in Egypt, Simeon, Joseph, for all he knows, is dead. He's got 10 sons left at home. He sends all of them. What is Jacob doing? He is putting at risk, he is putting at jeopardy the covenant of God. See, the covenant was all about making a great nation, multiplying the descendants of Abraham. And here are the only remaining righteous line of descendants of Abraham. He's sending them all out. What if robbers overtake them and kill them? There are no more descendants. The covenant is done. But Jacob is not the first person to put the covenant at risk with his son, yeah. sons. Abram did it himself. You remember in Genesis chapter 22 as he climbs up Mount Moriah and his son Isaac says, God, we have fire. We have the knife. Where's the sacrifice? And Abram raises the knife above his own son Isaac and he evokes the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai, believing even if I slay my son, the covenant of God shall come to pass because it's not on me, it's on God Almighty. He's the all-powerful one. If God wants to, he could raise Isaac from the dead. Yes. In fact, he does. And this Jacob, we've followed Jacob's life if you've been with us. He's not the best character in the Bible. He's a deceiver and a conniver and a grasper. But here, he's becoming a little more sanctified. God Almighty El Shaddai, the God of the covenant, 
It's up to you to keep my son safe. It's up to you to bring them back home. It's up to you that I'll see Benjamin again. And I wonder, have you ever been in a place like Jacob was, where the power of God has caused you, moved you, where God says, look at me, submit to me, return to me. Maybe even now God is dealing with you and the experiences and the situations you find yourself in today. God is saying, return to me pricking your conscience over sin, forgotten. Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you submit to El Shaddai, God Almighty? And so as Jacob sends his sons on this risky journey, I can just imagine he's standing there watching and they just become a dot on the horizon. And the whole time he's trusting in the mercy of a powerful God. God displays his mercy through his power Secondly, I want you to see in the second interaction these brothers have, God's mercy is displayed in his peace. God's mercy is displayed in his peace. See, the second interaction with an individual these brothers have is not with Joseph. It's actually Joseph's steward, as the Bible refers to him, his household manager. And they come and they communicate with him and they talk with him. Somehow, uh, Joseph saw, was made aware that as the brothers came back into Egypt, they ha- did in fact have Benjamin with them. And so Joseph tells his steward, his household manager, all right, here's what I want you to do. You're in charge of all the goings on that's about to happen. You go have an uh, animal uh, killed and sacrificed or prepared for a great meal. We're gonna have a lavish meal in my home. These are gonna be my guests in my home and you bring them into my house. And as they hear the word, you're being summoned to this ruler's house, they think the worst. Oh, great. He heard about the money that we left with and that we didn't leave it in Egypt, but we took it back with us. Great. And it's almost humorous the way they voice their concern in verse 18. Look at verse 18, what they think might befall them. He may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. (laughs) Do you really think This wealthy aristocrat in Egypt is worried about scoring a couple donkeys. (laughs) That's not his concern, but that's their fear. Oh, he's going to take our donkeys, right? So they haven't really fully made this connection here that God's in charge. But God is using this to remind them, to bring back to their remembrance all that's happening And so as they come to the house, first thing to do, they go up to the steward. They go up to the house manager, and they say, hey, we're going to be completely up front here. We're going to let you know something. When we got back home, we opened the sacks of grain. All our money was in the sacks. We didn't have anything to do with that. We just happened to find it there. So listen, we've brought back all the money we found, and we paid for it the first time. We brought more money so we can buy more grain. Well, sensing their anxiety, sensing their fear, what does the steward say to them? Look again at verse 23. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. I just thought of this application as we were singing earlier. I didn't mention this in the first sermon, so you're getting a little bonus here in the second second service. They were fearful about what this governmental leader might do to them or among them. 
And God speaks to them. Peace be still. Do not be afraid. You may be anxious about Tuesday this week. I am anxious. You may be fearful about the results of some election. I'm not fearful. God is in control. Regardless of who's elected, regardless of who's sitting in the White House, God says, Shalom. Peace to you. Don't be afraid about what some capricious ruler might do in your midst. Do you trust in God today? He rules over all. Now, obviously, this steward, amazingly, is speaking Hebrew to them because they understand what he's saying. And so the first word out of his mouth, shalom. Shalom. This is the common, familiar Hebrew greeting that's still used today in Israel. Peace. Shalom. They're fearful, they're worried, they're anxious. And God speaks through this household manager. Shalom. Peace. But then, not only that, he calls on the name of their God, not once but twice. Your God and the God of your father. This is the last place and the last person they thought would speak shalom to them and even bring up the name of God from his lips. Isn't it awesome when God does that sometimes? In the most unexpected times, in the most unexpected places, from the most unexpected people, God speaks his peace and even reminds us of himself through them. What a great God we have. Now, as I thought about this this week in my study, it, it begs the question, how did this household manager know about the God of the Hebrews? How did this household steward know about shalom of God, that he could speak it to them? I have no doubt in my mind that Joseph was an evangelist in Egypt, that Joseph himself, this ruler, spoke to this steward about the one true God and the shalom that he brings. In fact, uh, the Bible even says as much in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is a glorious psalm that describes many of the characters throughout Israel's history that God used to bring uh, salvation and, and security for the Hebrew people. There's one paragraph that is devoted to Joseph in that psalm. I want you to see it in part, what the Bible says about Joseph's dealings in Egypt. Verse 20 of Psalm 105 says, The king, that's Pharaoh, sent and released him, that's Joseph. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler, over, ruler of all his possessions. To do what? To bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. What wisdom do you think Joseph taught to the elders in Egypt? I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was the wisdom of God. It was the truth of the one true God, Yahweh, El Shaddai, his shalom, his peace. And here is this household manager speaking shalom. Why? Because he'd experienced shalom. He's talking about the one true God because he had seen the one true God in Joseph's life. But not only does he speak kindly to these 10 brothers who are fearful and anxious about what's to come. He does kindly to them. He takes them into the house. He gives them water to drink and to freshen up and wash their feet. And these donkeys, they were so worried about were going to be grabbed by this vindictive ruler. He even feeds them for them. Let me go feed your donkeys for you. All this lavish love and grace, he covers all the bases. And even though this mercy 
and this grace is being demonstrated towards them in such lavish ways, what are they doing? It's also humorous if you think about it. These 10 brothers, these 10 Hebrew roughneck shepherds are trying to put together just the perfect arrangement of pistachios and almonds and balm and myrrh and spices so they can present this present to Joseph. Men, you can probably relate to this when you've tried to put something together beautifully for your wives. It never quite looks like you'd hoped, right? <laughs> oh, this is pretty crummy. Here, honey, <laughs> right? This is what I see with these 10 brothers. As I was talking with Amy about it this week, it reminded us of something that happened in Borjas, Spain, about six years ago. There was a Catholic church in Spain, and there was a fresco painting of Jesus in this church that over the years had become well-worn and weathered, and it looked really in disrepair. Well, one elderly member, parishioner of this Catholic church was just so troubled by the way this depiction of Jesus was looking, was so shabby, she took it upon herself to restore it. Now, you need to know, she had zero expertise in art. She was not a painter. She had no experience in restoring beautiful paintings. But she made her attempt, and this is how it turned out. It's beautiful, isn't it? She did such a great job. It's horrible. It's the worst. <laughs> it couldn't get more worse. This has been called monkey Jesus by people. It's awful. Do you see this is what we do? We think, well, I can make some attempts to restore the image of Christ in me. I can clean this up and fix things here and fix things there. Then I'll be more acceptable to him. I can put together my little present for this massively wealthy second-in-charge ruler of the, of the world's superpower, and my paltry gift is going to be something he's going to say, oh, that's so magnificent. We can't do anything to make ourselves pleasing to God. We don't bring anything. We have nothing of restorative power in our lives. It's all on the merit of Jesus. It's all the work of Christ. And so here, these brothers, they come before Joseph, before his steward, and he speaks to them of the shalom, of the peace. And we know ultimately the way we experience the Prince of Peace yes. is through coming to know Christ. And that, that peace that passes understanding rules our hearts and our minds. But finally, I want us to see how God displays his mercy, not only through his power, through his peace, but number three, through his provision. God's mercy displayed in his provision for these 10 brothers. The third and final personal interaction we see in Genesis chapter 43 is the interaction with their brother Joseph. Again, they don't know it's their brother Joseph. He's unrecognizable to them. And this lavish provision from Joseph to them was completely unearned and undeserved. In fact, what did they deserve from Joseph? Hostility, revenge, prison, Let's see, inspired author Moses records the goings-on of this banquet for us. He mentions not once but twice in verse 26 and in verse 28, these brothers bow down before their brother Joseph. They fall on their face. Verse 28 says they're prostrate before them, which means they're flat out, laid out, noses in the dirt. 
obviously a fulfillment of the two dreams Joseph had as a young teenager. And as Joseph is interacting with them, he inquires of their father, is he doing well? Is he alive? Yes, he's well, he's alive. And Joseph's eyes meet with his brother Benjamin. He turns and looks at Benjamin, the beloved brother and son of his mother, Rachel, who died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And what does Joseph say? Look at verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And hear the name of God for the third time comes off the lips of someone in the book of Genesis. Hear the name of God for the second time comes off the lips of somebody in Egypt. They would never expect to be talking about God. And this is a merciful display of God in this provision. They kill the animal. They start serving the food. Portions are given to these brothers from Joseph's table. But do you notice what happened? Benjamin, his full brother by Rachel, gets five times the food that the rest of the brothers get. Five times the portions. Now, if you're a mom or dad, you've probably had to deal with this scenario before with your children. I know I have with my five children, particularly with dessert. You're cutting cake. Hey, this piece of cake's bigger than my piece of cake. Anybody ever had to deal with that before? Serving ice cream. Hey, they got more ice cream than I got. This is a test from Joseph. This is definitely a test. We know because in the next chapter, he's going to give them three more tests. He wants to know, are they going to respond with the jealousy and envy of obvious favoritism the way they responded 25 years earlier when their father showed obvious favoritism to him? Or have their hearts been changed? Have their hearts been warmed by the provision of this lavish banquet? Well, how do they respond? Look how this chapter ends. The closing words, and they drank and were merry with him. None of them said, hey, how come Benjamin got so much compared to us? There's none of that. You know why? Here's the thing. When you come to God and you realize, man, I bring nothing here. There is nothing that I should be bringing to this meal. For one, I should never be here. Because of all that I've done, because of all my sin, because of all my debt, I don't even deserve to be here. And you don't even care if other people at the banquet have a little bit bigger portion than you've got. So if there is in your own heart jealousy or envy towards other Christians, hey, why did God bless them with more money than I've been blessed with? You don't understand grace. You don't understand the mercy that's been lavished upon you. You don't deserve diddly squat. But he's given it to you. And there's no room for jealousy in that, these vagabond travelers from Canaan land have somehow been invited into this ruler's home. They're enjoying his lavish hospitality. They recognize their undeservedness. They know their unworthiness, and they're completely unmoved by the disparity of the portions that are given at the table. As I meditated on this reality this week, I was reminded again of an old hymn by the hymn writer Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, some 300 years ago, wrote probably the most famed English-speaking hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We sing that hymn here often. But he wrote wrote another not-as-well-known hymn, but the words of it just really capture poetically the absolute grace and mercy of God 
that we are guests at the banquet table. Listen to these words as I read them. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O oh our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. The, the line that gets me every time on that hymn is this one. Lord, why was I made a guest? Why am I at this table? I have no right to be here. And friend, neither do you. But here's the mercy, the great mercy of our God. He invites you to come. He invites you to the banquet. He invites you to the table to partake of the feast, to enjoy the lavish provisions of his mercy. Even today, he displays his mercy through his power in all providence. He displays his mercy in the peace that is spoken over our lives regardless of what's happening in our lives. And he displays his mercy through the great provision of his banquet table that can only be experienced and known through Jesus Christ. Have you accepted that invitation? Have you trusted in Jesus. And that leads to my last thought. No matter how far you may be from fellowship with God, he invites you to take a seat at his table. 